Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another exciting episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I don't know what That's Truth means for you, but for me it means the highlight, one of the highlights of my week on a Tuesday evening. Again, we are here live to interact with you for the next 90 minutes. Sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Um, Good evening, Brother Nathan. And let me say welcome to those who are listening. Thank you so much for allowing us to come into your home this evening. Now, last week, we ran out of time to be able to answer all of the questions that have had come in, and we have a whole list of questions still to answer, but please don't let that discourage you from sending in your question. When you do send in your question, or maybe you sent one in last week and you don't hear us answer it right away, don't fret. We will answer it in the order in which it came in. Pastor... As we ended last week's episode, you were talking about whether there is such a thing as an untimely death. Anything else you want to add along those lines? I I think we, uh, in concluding, we didn't have enough time to explain a little bit more on the subject. I do believe that there is such a thing as untimely death. I mentioned, for example, people who commit suicide. There's no question that um, a person who commits suicide at 20 or 30 uh, God uh, to, to take that uh, God push that person to do that particular act is is just out of harmony with our understanding of God's nature and God's character. Um, I think sometimes accidental deaths. Uh, a young man, twenty, speeding up the road when he noticed the speed limit is forty, he's going at hundred, and he gets into a, an accident. I mean, I mean, he's lost his whole life. I remember sometime. Uh, two years ago, I think it was, a young man who got angry with his grandmother, a young man who was going to uh, take the grammar school, uh, took the vehicle and, and uh, sped off, and then when it got to the Woods Mall, he ran into the wall and was killed. I mean, that is, that's quite frankly, that was an, an untimely death. That's not something that was uh, designed. Uh, and of course, I mentioned alcoholics, who if you're drinking alcohol in a serious matter, and you're an alcoholic, you've cut short your life by 10 years. If you're drinking alcoholic and smoking, 15 years. So a lot of people can control the, that aspect. So, uh, But I did want to mention also in Scripture, um, there are one or two examples I can think about, and I mentioned uh, Asiel uh, in Second Samuel chapter two, verse um, seventeen to twenty-three, when he was uh, pursuing uh, Joab, uh, Abner, uh, Abner, I think he was. Yes, it was Joab's brother. And Abner appealed to him not to pursue him. He said, you know, why should I have to, to, to injure you and kill you, et cetera, et cetera. But the young man in his zeal and his passion, um, you know, acted. And, and uh, you found that um, Abner ended up um, spearing him and killing him. I mean, that was quite unnecessary. He was warned. 
um, Abner didn't want to um, commit the act, but again, his life was threatened, and out of self-defense, he killed them. I mean, that was unnecessary. If you listen to the senior man, that would not have happened. But here's another one. I think the most interesting one is, is with Abner, which you find in Second Samuel chapter 3, verse 33, that after he was killed uh, by, by Joab, uh, uh, David said, died Abner a foolish death. And the reason why David said he died a foolish death is because, because Abner had killed Joab's brother, uh, Asiel. Joab wanted to take vengeance. But God had made provision for what is called cities of refuge. If you kill somebody accidentally, unintentionally, you would go to the city of refuge and you stay there until the death of the high priest. But uh, Joab was able to lure Abner away from the city of refuge if you just follow what the law was. And that is when he was killed by Joab. And, and, and David lamented, died Abner a foolish death. There was no reason for his death if he had just stayed within the law and lived within the city of refuge. So I think those are examples of uh, what you might call an untimely death. I know it might seem to some people puzzling that God is sovereign. He knows everything. But uh, I want to say that there is what I call God's permissive will and God's um, um, complete will. And there are things that God permits. And I mentioned before, I think that what will uh, be traumatic for us is to see what God's will, if it was fulfilled in our lives, what it would have been vis-a-vis what it has become. So his permissive will and his direct will, I think they're, they're the two different things altogether. But I do think that people make some silly mistakes, do some silly things, and uh, there's no need for, for some forms of death. That's why I call it an untimely death. Uh, next question that we have, and before I jump into that, let me actually share the contact information. Maybe you just tuned in to That's Truth, and you have a question. You'd like to call and be put live on the air. Call 268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. And you can join us on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then comment your question under that video feed. Pastor, has modesty been redefined? The listener wants to know, how is it that modesty in the Bible is different from modesty today? Well, um... Everyone knows that when you look at the the culture of the Middle East, even today, even the the way that they dress, that goes way back even to the first century, to be very honest with you. The the gong that goes right down to uh, your toes, basically, in Western culture uh, is completely different. The cultures are different. Uh, But modesty uh, is a principle that whether you're living in the Arab culture or you're living within a Western culture, uh, there are some basic concepts of modesty. You could know when a woman is dressed modestly or not. It's almost something automatic, as though God has pre-programmed us to understand that there are certain parts of a woman's body that should not be exposed because to excite uh, interest, prurient interest often uh, in that. Uh, But what we need to do, and the big challenge that we have, is to try to take the biblical principles and apply them to a modern culture and a a, a precept or a principle that is permanent uh, in scripture is one that is rooted in the nature of God or rooted in the gospel or rooted in the in the created order so uh, when it comes to the application of modesty we must take those kind of principles clearly for example you take the creation story it is very clear that man was not designed after the fall to be naked 
the moment man sinned, God clothed man, and man became conscious and ashamed. So uh, it is built into us that a, a person's body should be covered, and we should not be um, exposed uh, without any kind of, of um, covering. I couldn't think of a more appropriate time of the year for you to say that live on the air than right two weeks before Carnival. Oh, yeah, it is shameful, Nathan. I mean, any any person that has any sense of morals and ethics and uh, see the way that uh, these women get on the streets, especially the women. The women behave much more worse than the men. This is what puzzles me. They walk up more than the men, to be very honest with you, and I'm not too sure if it's their moment of glory on television that uh, they want the whole world to see, but it is something very, very shameless. And uh, um, and I do feel that um, it, it and, and by the way I, not just in Antigua I know in Barbados for example after carnival in most cases uh, that I know of the birth rate goes up it's a, it's a given with the alcohol the drinking the parading the, the bacchanal the, uh, the dancing the, the, uh, all the gyration all of that it, it's just designed, uh, de- de- designed to stimulate sexual interest and that is where it leads to uh, these kind of things but um, the point I'm making, however, that if we, for me, uh, one of the biblical principles about modesty for uh, women, for example, is that if anything that comes above the thigh, because God told the Jews that one of the ways that He would bring them to shame and embarrassment that they would He would cause their thighs to be exposed. To my mind, that's a basic principle: the thigh should not, and if the thigh is a bit above the knee. So when that part of your body is exposed, uh, to my judgment, that is being immodest for women. And of course, for men, men can be immodest as well. When you take the, your, your shirt button, you go down to your navel, and you, got your, your, you, know, you want to show that it's all designed um, to, to uh, your moment of glory and uh, to cause people to, to have desires. But the, the biblical principle of modesty is something that um, uh, there's no... Guidelines saying that your, 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 where your dress should be, or where your pants should be, or where your shirt should be, but there is built into us a sense of what is proper and what is not proper. This is something that we know intuitively, uh, and I would say to to women, always remember that the greatest thing about men is that they are excited by what they see. I'll say to men, what really uh, appeals to women is uh, what you say is communication is a key to a woman's heart. Uh, uh, appearance and physical things are really key to uh, a man's and women need to be aware of that and I think because they're different than men and they don't feel the same way men feel about these matters they just don't understand how they can easily stimulate interest in that so I would say to uh, to people that modesty would be the standard uh, and of course I would use that biblical principle of above the, the thigh anything uh, that exposes the thigh is immodest for a believer the problem, uh, Nathan, is that the culture is what sets the norm for, for dressing. And we have not been, as Christians, been as much concerned about what is biblically modest as we should be. Um, women today and men today want to be what you call sexy. I mean, that's the key term. They don't want to be godly or seen to be godly or to be labeled as godly. And I think that's one of the the grievous um, errors that we make in regards to how we dress and how we behave. But again, if you're trying to decide what is a fundamental precept that is binding, uh, visa, visa, a a principle that is not binding. For example, let me use an example. Modesty is, is clearly binding because it's rooted in creation. And it's also reaching rooted in the nature of God, as God is a holy God, etc., etc. But greeting one another with a holy kiss, 
we express um, that differently than in the Middle East. That is not a principle that is binding. That's what I mean by it's not rooted in creation, it's not rooted in the character of God, um, it's not rooted in the gospel. But clearly there are ways that we express um, friendship and hospitality and greeting. We would shake each other's hand, etc. Cetera, et cetera. But if you go to the Middle East, he'll embrace you, kiss you on each cheek, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So that is a culturally conditioned principle as opposed to one that is um, pervasive or one that is standard and should be maintained. I don't know if that helps the, the right, the, the person who sent in the question, but um, all I would say to you is that we have to take the biblical principle of modesty when it comes to dress, and I believe when it comes to dress, the, the biblical principle there is the that would help to know what is modest and what is not, what you should be ashamed of, is anything above the, the thigh, I think that would be a basic principle. Thank you to the individuals who have sent in questions thus far. If you have a question, you can call and ask it live on the air, 268-462-7420. If you'd rather not speak live on the air, but you still have a question, feel free to WhatsApp or text it, and we will keep it anonymous. If you the first beginning of your question, you just put anonymous, and we won't even mention what country or what region your area code is yeah. from. I wanted to interject two 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 words of passage, two passages. Look at First Timothy chapter two verse nine to, to ten, because I've known of uh, churches who have split over these issues. First Timothy two nine to ten. Yeah. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women of professing godliness. With good works, yeah. The the emphasis there is uh, is not that a woman can't braid her hair, a woman can't wear a piece of jewelry. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is talking extravagance. In other words, you are trying to draw attention to your body, to yourself. That is when in the church, that is not supposed to be the goal when you go to church. You don't. When you walk through the door, you make a statement. Everybody's eyes turn. That who is this supermodel coming in? That's what he's talking about in the passage. But uh, uh, and uh, where I know that because Paul says uh, not in costly raiments. So if you're saying you can't wear braids, I mean you can't wear, what's a raiment? A raiment is a dress. You can't wear it. So he's not talking about that. He's just talking about this extravagance. And that is where modesty is the principle of how people should dress. Uh, and, and, and the other one is First Peter chapter 3, verse 3 to 5. First Peter 3, 3 to 5 says, Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting of hair and wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornate of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God a great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Yeah. You notice Christy verse 9 there. Uh, read that again. Uh, verse 9? Yeah. Uh, uh, sorry, verse, you read verse 3, right? Verse yeah. 3. Yeah. Verse 3. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting of hair uh -huh. and of wearing of gold. Uh-huh. 
or of putting on of apparel. Now, you see, if people say you can't wear gold, you can't, you can't wear dre- any dress. See, see my point? We just went to the other extreme. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can't put point. on clothes. So if you're saying that you can't wear a thing, you can't put on gold, you can't, you can't put on garments. So that's not what Paul is saying. And, and Paul explains it's not the outward person that should, should cause the attraction. It's the inward person to heart. So what people need to concentrate on is two things, uh, good works and the hidden person of, of character, meek and a quiet spirit uh, that should be attractive. Now, the, the problem is that Hollywood has shaped our mind of what you look for. And uh, we have been so conditioned that we don't look for those inequalities. We look for the outward manifestation of, of, of certain, uh, that Hollywood says are the ideal of what beauty is supposed to be. So you have, <laughs> you have young ladies today who are anorexic, yeah. I mean, and it's a big problem in the States. I don't know if you know that. Uh, uh, bulimia is another big problem yeah. as well. But, but again, they're trying to get this ideal. When you see them, they are like a skeleton. But they still think they're too big. So they starve themselves to death to come up to this ideal. Uh, and, and again, I think it has done tremendous damage to our psyche as to what is really beautiful and what is not beautiful. What God says to do is to concentrate on good works. That means... Uh, reaching out and, and, and let people talk about you you're, you're meeting the needs of other people and ministering to other people and then the inequalities that he talks about so focus on those things and uh, that's what he's talking so avoid ostentation and uh, extravagance that's the key thing and, and go back to the concept of, of modesty don't don't focus on the external focus on the internal and uh, and I think that is what the Bible is talking about in this passage You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 kilohertz AM, 92.3 megahertz FM, and online at radiolighthouse.org. Currently at the Radio Lighthouse studio and across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening, the time is 749. If you are listening on a Saturday afternoon as we are rebroadcasting this program. Welcome to you and thank you for listening and if you have a question, don't hesitate to send it in. You can WhatsApp or text it. No one will be in the studio but we will answer it the following episode, the following Tuesday Lord willing. And you can WhatsApp or text your question to one two six eight seven eight two. 1454 WhatsApp or text 2687821454 We have another question that has come in Pastor why should a man cut his hair Well I would uh, suggest you look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 13 to 15 1 Corinthians 11 15, 13 to 15, 15 says judge in yourselves Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that? If a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given for a covering. Look, I think that what this is talking about is that we have, uh, nature has an instinctive, um, dictates to us uh, that when a man assumes a symbol of feminism, or femininity, or a woman assumes a symbol of masculinity, that we automatically have a sense that uh, something is being violated in terms of God's intended order. And I, I mean by that, that generally speaking, 
naturally, women here grow longer than men naturally, uh, faster and longer than men. That seemed to be a built-in code that says that this is how God designed it, right? Um, so it is proper. You don't want a man to look like a woman. God has made very clear distinctions about these type of things. And I think this is what Paul is talking about here, that naturally a woman uh, wears longer hair than a man does. And he's saying that's what he's saying. You don't want this unisex thing that you see today that I, I saw a lady today, quite frankly, that she looked complete like a man. Her head is shaved like a man, everything. I'm saying to myself, but why would you do that, right? The only thing that told me she was a man that she had bus. But generally speaking, looked like a man and uh, in some ways act like a man as well. I think that that is out of order, and I think that that's what Paul is talking about. Um, some people say, well, I'd like to be natural. You know, so, but, but again, remember that we are not living in a natural world where everything is in order. We're living in a fallen world, and as a result of that, um, you've got to be to keep your hair. Um, you've got to comb your hair. Uh, you want your hair to look uh, decent. Um, so, to use the example of being natural, remember that we are, we are living in a fallen world, so we still have to take. There's nothing. If you let your garden be natural, what would it become? Yeah. <laughs> what would it be like if you were natural and didn't brush your teeth? Didn't, didn't brush your teeth or shave your... Yeah, somebody's got it. Yeah, Pastor, we have a caller from Bendel's Antigua, Brother Williams. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, good evening. Hi, good evening. Long time no here, sir. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> good hearing your voice. Good hearing your voice. Yeah, thank you. But I need to go. I'm doing well. What can we do for you tonight? Yeah, cool, cool. Today, my anniversary and my wife... Uh, birthday too. Uh, happy happy anniversary and happy birthday to your wife. Congrats. Thank you very much. May you have many uh, more years, many more togethers. Bless, bless. Uh, Pastor uh, Yes, sir. Uh, I would like you to explain something to me, please, tonight. If I can. Uh, Matthew, Matthew 22, 41 to 46. To 46. Okay, let me read those. Matthew 22, 41 to 46 says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? In verse 46, And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. Yeah, that, that particular passage has to do with the fact that the, Jew, the, uh, the religious people did not understand the true identity of Christ. They saw him as a mere man. They didn't understand that he was both man and God at the same time. So that's why our Lord uh, asked him, whose son is he? He is the son of David by his, his, uh, his physical birth because he came through the lineage of David. From the prophetic word, from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the, what is called the Proto-Evangelion, the first promise that, the, that God would send the seed of a woman, right through the Bible, we know that the Messiah is going to come through the line of Abraham, going to come through Jacob, come through um, Ju- Judah, it's going to come right through David, going to come through Solomon, etc., etc. So he is physically, as a Jew, born of the lineage of David. So he is the son of David in the sense that he has a, 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 a human ancestry. But he is more than that. And that's the point he's making. If he is just a natural ancestry of David, 
How come God said, uh, the Lord, Jehovah said unto Jehovah, sit down on my right hand? So he's saying, you know, he's more than just a man. In other words, this is God's son. So while he's the son of David, he's also the son of God. And they could only see the Davidic side, the son of man, but they could not see the divine side, that he is both God and man at the same time. That is what our Lord is trying to get them to understand, that he is, he is Lord. He's the Jehovah of the Old Testament. That's what he's trying to say to them. He's more than just the son of David. But he could not he could not have been the Messiah had he not been the son of David, because that's the one of his credentials. He must come to the line of David. But he's also from eternal. Uh, Micah chapter 2, who going forth is from everlasting. So this is God's son that was sent down, was born through the lineage of David, and he's both man and God at the same time. That is the mystery that he wanted them to understand that they had. You remember one time he said, before Abraham was, I am. And when he said it, they took up stones to stone him. He said, but wait a minute, you're not even 40 whatever years. And you're saying that you knew Abraham, you before Abraham. Again, the word I am, that expression is found in Exodus chapter 3. When uh, uh, Moses asked, who do I say I am that I am? By taking that title he was identifying himself as a Jehovah as the Old Testament and of course that was blasphemy to them because they couldn't believe that he could be God and man at the same time so that is why our Lord asked that question to try to bring it to the point that it's, it's more than just David he is actually the son of God so, 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 so that is why they, they didn't want to believe in God they say because they say David called him the Lord and how come he claiming he's the son of David? Yeah. So that is the argument they had against him. Yeah, and don't forget that up to today, the Jews think that he was a fraud. The, Jew, the majority of Jewish, the nation of Israel, believed that Christ was not the Messiah. They never came to the point of understanding that the Messiah was going to suffer. They always saw the Messiah as one that was going to be triumphant, one that will uh, demolish the Roman authorities and put Israel back on the center of the world stage and, and the Messiah will sit on the throne and rule from Jerusalem. That's going to happen in the future, during the Millennial Kingdom. But they could not understand. They never saw the point that he would die as a lamb first and then come and reign as a lion. They only saw the lion aspect of it, but not the lamb. But if they had read Isaiah chapter 53 they would have seen that the Messiah would die for the sins of the world and then he would one day become Lord and rule on planet Earth from Jerusalem, which would become the center of his rule. They never saw that. Even today, by the way, groups like the, the Jehovah's Witness, they don't see that either, right? And, uh, and, and uh, even, this, even uh, the Seventh-day Adventists and the Catholic Church, they have no place for Israel in the future. But the Messiah, uh, who came to the Davidic line, is going to rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years according to Scripture. Uh, but that is what he's trying to get them to understand, that the, the, he's more than just a man. He's a God-man. He's both God and man at the same time. He's the Messiah, and he's the Son of God. Okay, then. Thanks for the explanation. You're welcome, sir. God bless you. Thank you for your call, Brother Williams, and thank you for encouraging others to tune in to That's Truth and to listen to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.58. Pastor, do you have anything else you want to mention? No, I just wanted to mention that I think God has programmed us that when a man uh, takes on a symbol of the uh, other gender, like when a man tries to be a woman or a woman tries to be a man, there is something naturally in every normal person that is repulsed by that, okay? Uh, and that is why people call people uh, homophobic. It's not that uh, you, you, you hate 
people who are homosexual or lesbians. It's not you hate, but you just feel repulsed because this is against nature. Yeah. This is against God's order. So you can't help it because it's built into you that this is not to be normal, right? And they don't understand that. So if you oppose it, or you say it's wrong, it's sin, they label you. And of course, they're hoping that by labeling you, you'll be muted and not speak out. But that will never happen as long as the Word of God is alive and well. We speak out against those things that are contrary to nature, contrary to God's divine order in creation. The, the other thing I would like to say, Nathan, that when you have a question like here, uh, it, the Bible says, you know, it's sh- how long should it be? Again, I, I would say to people that conscience an informed conscience have to guide you in these kind of things. People can't impose whether it be an inch below your ear. But there is a point where you've got to realize that you don't want to be like a woman. You don't want to seem as a woman. When a guy sees you from the back and you look like a woman, you don't want that. You want to have a clear identity to maintain this gender distinction that God has made. But when there are issues of um, where you're not too sure how where to draw the line, I would like to say there are some principles to guide you in making those kind of decisions. I'll just list some of them. For example, uh, Paul uh, mentions in Corinthians chapter 6 verse 12. Would you like to read that for me, please? First Corinthians chapter 6 verse 12. First Corinthians six twelve. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Simple. I mean, Paul said, look, you know, Christ has set me free. I'm a free man. I can do quite frankly guided by my conscience is what he said I can do and when he said all things by the way uh, G. Campbell Morgan uh, has a sermon on this it it means that anything basically that's what he's saying I'm not because I am free in Christ I I don't have to have all these limitations but then Paul says all things are not expedient what do you mean it's not beneficial it, it doesn't help the other person if the other person is offended by it. Uh, I will not be brought under the power. I don't want anything to master my life so that it dominates my life and I have no control of it, right? But it doesn't mean I don't have the freedom to do certain things, but Paul restrains himself because of that. And then look at Romans chapter 14, verse 19. Romans 14, verse 19 says, let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherein one may edify another. Again, is this going to create disruption, this thing I want to do that I feel I got the liberty to do, you know? Uh, is it going to create disruption in the church and uh, create all kinds of problems? Said, but why, why, why? And then does it edify? Does it build up anybody? I mean, you do it, so, so for what? What's the point, you know? You're concerned about other people. Um, and then look at Romans chapter 14, verse 21. Just give me some quick principles here, Nathan. Fourteen twenty-one. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Again, is it a stumbling block to another brother? Is it, is it going to offend him unnecessarily that you don't have to do this thing because, you know, it, he's offended, he's not as mature as you are? And by the way, the person who is genuinely offended, Paul labels him as the immature person. So you've got to understand that your maturity uh, must not be used to destroy the, the faith or the confidence of that person. So again, uh, is it offend? Uh, and then um, Corinthians 10.30. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 30. Says, For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that for which I give thanks? 
uh, no, I, I got the wrong verse, but it's that verse that says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, I think it's maybe 10, 13, uh, um, but it's all, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The point is here is that whatever you do in life, does it put God in display? Does it manifest God in any way? Uh, that is something you need to be concerned about, that as a Christian, you are the display window that people see into who God is by looking at your life. So why do I get involved in something that is is not going to lead to God being put on display with people who actually have a false view of God or a negative view of Him? And then the other one, Romans uh, 14, 13. Romans 14 and verse 13 says, Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or any occasion to fall in his brother's way. Again, stumbling block issue. If, you know, this is going to cause another believer to stumble. These are some basic principles that uh, should guide us in making decisions relative to issues that are debatable and there's no clear uh, Bible regulation that will tell you how far you're here should be or how, you know, those kind of issues. Uh, these are some basic principles that would guide in, in that particular matter. Yeah, I know Pastor listed a number of things there, and we went through those references quickly. If you would like to absorb that in your own time and study it in more depth, you can listen to this program both on the rebroadcast on Saturday afternoon from 3.30 until 5 p.m. here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. And if that is not convenient or you want to hear it even a third time, you can listen to the podcast not familiar with what a podcast is it is an audio recording put out online you can download it you can put it on your phone you can listen to it on a computer on your own timetable and to find it uh, later this week we will post it and you can go to our website radiolighthouse.org scroll down to the second large photo that you see a photo of a microphone right in the center of the screen you're going to see a circle that says podcast click on that then click on the first link that you see on the page there that is for That's Truth podcast, and you can look at all previous 211 episodes of That's Truth. Pastor, we have a question that has just come in from Trinidad. Good night. Why does the Catholic Church have benches for individuals to bend on their knees and to pray? Why is it not found in other churches? Is it wrong to find peace in a Catholic Church? Well, I, I don't think it's a bad thing to have a kneeler where you've got a, uh, you've got a pew and then you've got a kneeler in front of you that people can pray. Don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But there's no directive in the Bible relative to any kind of furniture that belongs to the church, I think. Even in our church, we normally have a pad that is up to the front of the, the, um, the, by the pulpit on the stadium um, so that you can actually come in and, and uh, if you want to come down the aisle and, and pray or you want somebody to pray with you come down and you can kneel and do that so I think it's I don't have a problem with that I don't have a problem with the Catholic Church putting it uh, in their church my main problem with the Catholic Church is who you pray to we pray to God we don't pray to Mary uh, Mary is just a woman and uh, that is where I have the problem uh, with the Catholic Church in respect to this whole matter of prayer uh, but there's nothing wrong with the Catholic. If you to find peace in the Catholic Church, if you find peace by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I don't have a problem with that. But if you're looking for redemption in the church and redemption in Mary, the core redemptrix, then I do have a problem with that because you'll never find peace with God by uh, depending on Mary to get you into heaven. Mary can't help you. 
uh, the only person that can help you in regard to the Father is Jesus Christ. No man comes to the Father except through me. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So that's where my problem comes in. I know that there are some people who are saved within the Catholic Church. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. But they're not saved because of what they believe the Church teaches, because they believe that they must join the Church in order to be saved, and they must take the communion in order to be saved, and they must do penance and the seven heaven sacraments to be saved. They'll never get to heaven because you've got a false basis on which you're grounding your salvation. It is faith in Jesus Christ, repentance from your sin. That's the only thing that will get you to heaven. Nothing plus, nothing more than that. Uh, and that's where you have the problem. But the good thing of having the, the pew there that people can come into the church. And I know in St. Lucia, for example, the Catholic Church down in the center of the city is open. Anybody can go in there and have these, you can pray. I think that's good. You get away from work, you go in there and pray. I don't have a problem with that. I think other churches, if they could do it, and especially the city where there's a lot of commotion, people just want to get away from lunch and just go over there and just meditate and pray. I think it's a wonderful thing to do that. So I don't have a problem with it, quite frankly. Our next question is from St. Kitts Nevis. Was Ellen G. White a true prophet? No, absolutely not. The I can uh, probably in the program deal with her at some point in time. There's a book I would recommend that you read, and you can go online. It's called The White Lie, okay, by McCray. That's his name. He's an ex-Seventh-day Adventist pastor who left the Seventh-day Adventist movement when he began investigating the writings of Ellen G. White. And what he discovered to his utter dismay this woman is talking about the uh, Lord telling her things and revealing things to her. And uh, and then to discover the books that she wrote, they were plagiarized. So what the guy did basically, he took her writings and put what she said on one side and then found the other books and put them on the other side. The whole book is about the white lie that she did not receive these revelations from God. She borrowed them all, from, but she never, she never, she claimed to be a prophet that God spoke to when she wrote all these books. So when he realized that this was what we he left the church and he wrote the book. And there are many that left the, the, the Seventh-day Adventist Church after that book was written because they discovered for the first time that this woman was telling lies. She's claiming that God has given a direct revelation when in actual fact she has a, 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 a whole team of people who are searching and researching and writing the books. And then she said that she um, did credit. So I would recommend that book. The other thing is that there are some prophecies that she made I could quote uh, some other time and show that they never came through. And the Bible said the way you know a false prophet, if he makes some, a, a claim and it doesn't come through, it's not, it's not correct. And some other recommendations that she made about um, science and about um, health and so on and so forth was actually discovered that it's not true, it's, it's false. So I think that uh, clearly she's not a prophet, not a prophet. That's a great segue into our next question. Are there true modern-day prophets? Is God still using prophets today? Well, it depends on what, how you are going to define the, the, the whole matter of prophets. If you, you remember a prophet performed two jobs in the Old Testament. His job was, first of all, to speak to the times and the issues. So we call that forthtelling. He's telling the people what the will of God and the mind of God is in respect to the problems and the issues at the time. So if there's injustice and uh, mistreatment and murder and idolatry, these prophets speak to those issues. He's forthtelling. But then another part of the prophet was to foretell, to tell about the future. And uh, that was a gift that God gave those people to, to tell about the future. So if you're talking about the prophetic gift in terms of a person who is able to speak to the issues of our times, in a sense, you could say that he has a prophetic gift. Uh, there are some 
outstanding Christian apologists and polemicists who are able to deal with the issues of our times in ways that you can see that they have a unique gift. If you want to label that a prophetic gift in the sense that they, they, they can attack the issues and deal with the issues and big biblical, I would say yes. But in the idea of having the gift to foretell the future, absolutely not. No such prophets exist today. And here's the reason. The word of God is complete. If you were to read, I would challenge anybody to read Genesis and read Revelation. You cannot read the Bible and read Genesis and Revelation without understanding that one is the beginning and the end is the completion. Everything you find in Genesis basically is almost undone in the book of Revelation. It's as though uh, the first page of the last page, the first book in the last book, the Bible is complete. Whatever God has to say to us about the future is in the Word. And what we need to do is to study the Word, and uh, that will bring you informed as to what is going to happen and where we are at this point in time. I will challenge those of you to, who are listening to read Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 and see the role that Russia is going to play in the end time. And then then look at the current political alliance between Russia and Iran and the other nations in that area and see that it is very, very clear that long before this thing, this 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 coalition that you're seeing is actually predicted in, in uh, Genesis sorry in, in Ezekiel chapter thirty eight. Read it carefully what is going to happen when Russia comes against Israel. But it's all there and when you look at the 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 uh, the names that are mentioned you're going to see that the alliance that you see today is exactly the alliance that is beginning to happen. So the, the, the hand, as it were, of like the when the guy went to, Elijah told him, go and look at to see if the rain is falling. And he said, I see the, a cloud like the hand of a man rising. That's the prophetic picture today. You can almost see this thing getting larger and larger and larger. We're moving towards a climactic end. And you need to read your Bible and stop listening to these people who claim to be prophets. Um the reason for that as well, Nathan, is that um, if you look at uh, Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Ephesians two nineteen and 20. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Those, in my judgment, are the particular gifts uh, that have actually no longer needed because they laid the foundation. The reason why God called the apostles and the prophets in the New Testament was to lay the foundation of the church and lay the foundation of biblical principles. Now, once the foundation is built, you build on the superstructure. That's where you got the pastors and evangelists, etc., etc. But they were chosen by God to lay the foundation. We don't need to go back to the foundation. The foundation already laid, and the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. So there's no need for that prophetic gift any longer. The other thing I would say, if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8 to 10. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. So at some point in time, God never intended the prophetic gift or the, the gift of tongues to last indefinitely. Okay? Now, of course, it, the Bible doesn't tell you exactly when it will end. But clearly, when we begin to deal with, it, with, with those and other things, you'll see that once the Bible was completed, there was no need now for the prophetic gift. God has already told us what will happen. There's no, 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 no need now for the tongues gift as well because you had to have an interpreter tell you what God was saying. But that is already completed. Um, so that's another principle that is, is there. And then 
Second um, Peter chapter two verse one. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring up themselves swift destruction. And then look at Matthew chapter 24, look at verse 11 and verse 24. Matthew 24? Yeah, verse 11 and verse 24. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. Skipping down to verse 24. For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. It's very, very clear. This this renewal of what they call it. You know, there's a, a school in America that you can go and train to be a prophet, but you've got to pay to learn how to be a prophet. You know, they're trying to create what is called the prophetic school that you had in the Old Testament with Elijah. Uh, so much craziness is going on today that I just can't believe. Look, I, I, I'm afraid that the church, unless we come back to uh, the Bible and let that be the standard by which we live uh, and by which we govern and by which we hold our beliefs and get our principles, and uh, as long as we're looking towards men who claim to have the prophetic gift, who men, many times go contrary to the Bible or what they teach, um, we are in serious trouble. And I think that the church is set up for deception. And I think that has happened over the years. Uh, look at, uh, take Benny Hinn, for example, right? Benny Hinn has now come out and said that what he, what he believed before was wrong. And I give him credit that he that he has finally said that you know, a lot of things that he believed, he don't believe now. But my answer to, to, to Benny Hinn would be very simple. Well, give back the people the money. You know, it's millions of dollars he has raked in with his false teaching he's been teaching. And now he's saying I was wrong all this time. Okay, if you're really wrong... Uh, get back the people who gave you all this money, but of course you never do that, right? But the the church is being deceived right and left and center because it's moved away from biblical authority, and we got to get back to the scriptures and teach the scriptures and preach the scriptures and get our, our moral principles. For example, uh, Nathan, if I might say this, not want to get up in topic, but that's why there's so much confusion about same-sex marriage. Uh, homosexuality, transgender. You know why that's, the confusion is there? Because the church has not set forth clearly the divine order in creation on these matters and have not stuck to their position. They're allowing the psychologists and people who have got twisted minds and, and the people who got a different agenda than, than biblical agenda to influence them to the point where they've now surrendered and kowtowed to these type of people. And therefore... There is no moral voice any longer that is echoing that these things are wrong. Uh, I think that's a major mistake that is being made. So no, in my judgment, there are no prophets today in the sense that they have the prophetic gift to foretell the future. I was just reading um, a book by um, Josh McDowell on... It had to do with Casey. You've heard of Casey? Mm-hmm. Uh, um Casey is a guy in the States, I forgot his first name right now, but he's a guy who has done a lot of prophecy. Okay. And he has been able, Nathan, to um, heal people from a distance. He's been able to tell doctors what the problem was. I mean, there's a hundred and some of cases, no, over a thousand cases of that. But again, he made a lot of prophecies that were false. And he used to read his Bible every single day, he used to go to church. But he said that he was a real, he wrote the book of Luke. Because wow. he was in a reincarnated body before he became who he was, uh, and so he said that uh, 
Jesus as a reincarnation of um, other characters that existed before. Now, this is a man in the church reading this Bible, and it is true that he was able to say a lot of things and, and do healing, but he's a false prophet. You yeah. can't make those kind of statements. He also said that uh, California was supposed to fall into the sea. <laughs> I think it did. I forgot the date, right? Never happened. Never happened. Um, but Again, he claimed to be a big prophet yeah. uh, and so on and so forth and misled a lot of people. And but the Bible, even in twenty four, Matthew 24, 24, you just had me read, says yeah. false prophets and they shall show great signs. It doesn't deny that they're going to yeah. be able to do works. One other thing, Nathan, in this matter, we know one thing, that God has promised that there are only two other prophets to come. Okay. And that's in Revelation chapter 11, where it talks, you could, if you want to just read that for just a moment. All right, Revelation chapter 11. Uh, just read from the beginning because we just take a little time all right. so you get the whole context of yeah. it. Uh, the title of this chapter is The Two Witnesses. Right, the two. Okay. And there was given me a reed unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and then them that worship therein. And the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread under the foot forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy, prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Yeah. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before God, the God of the earth. And if any man shall hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth, and they devour their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in days of their prophecy, and have the power over the waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. We can stop there because generally speaking, the public can read that. But that's talking about in the tribulation. Notice the, the, the defining time limit, 42 months and 1260 days, three and a half years. This has to do with the tribulation period where these two prophets will arise and uh, speak against the Antichrist. You'll find later that they're going to be killed. And then there's going to be a great birthday party, people celebrating that day. And the Bible says that the whole world will see their bodies rise up before them. Now, again, that's a marvelous patch. That made no sense to people until you had television and telecommunications. You can actually, a person can be killed today, you can actually watch the funeral. That's what it's talking about. Mm -hmm. Far ahead of time, God was saying, look, the time is coming. I'm going to raise up these two prophets in the end days, the tribulation period. They're going to kill them. And then they're going to celebrate, but then they're going to watch their bodies rise up out of Jerusalem. Into Now imagine the impact that's going to have. But that shows you how far in advance uh, the scripture was remember this Bible that we got here was 1611 we knew nothing about television until in the 20th century basically so clearly we're ahead of time what would have happened but the point I'm making here is that the only endorse future prophets are these two prophets that God said these will arise and they will do great wonders but if we don't have time but in Revelation chapter 13 there's another prophet that's going to rise up called the second beast who will align himself with the first beast, which is the Antichrist, and he will promote the agenda 
of the Antichrist and uh, persuade people to receive the mark of the beast. And one of the conditionalities of receiving the mark of the beast is that if you don't do it, you can't buy or sell. It would be the commercial control of the world from a centralized authority. And this prophet will be saying, this is the Christ. This is the one. You need religion and politics to be married together. That is what is going to happen in the, in the future. And uh, even today, every pol politician knows that they are sensitive to the religious people, and they know that if they do certain things, they are consequences because they live in a democracy. And that's why they don't touch certain subjects, because the, the Christians rise up against a political party. They're not going to get back into power. So that's why sometimes they're very mute. It's not that they don't want to change these things, but they realize that these are hot buttons <laughs> and so on. And thankfully, that is still true in the Caribbean to some extent. Other than that, uh, we would have gone the way of America a long, long time in, in promoting, but we're headed in that direction recently with the Buckery laws being, um, they're going to be cancelled out now. But again, my, my whole question about this whole thing is this, you know, if the law was, uh, I, a guy just sent me an uh, email that gave me the whole history. This guy is telling the whole history of where Buckery was um buggery laws came from and how they were changed and the times that how much years you could get and all that kind of stuff my whole issue there is that how can all of those people be wrong that was so many years ago and it, and by the way up until in in, in uh, i think it's uh, in modern times they've had to look at these laws already and change the amount of time you can get for involving in it. But again, so you're telling me that all this generation are wrong about what buggery is about. Buggery is evil, it is sin, it is ungodly. And the reason why those were put on the books is because at that time, the legislation and the politicians at least were God conscious. And the Bible was still a basic print, uh, book that would guide their moral decisions. That's why it was on the book. It's the Bible that influenced that to be on the book. So why do we change it now? Has... Has anything changed to make buggery evil and sinful? Nothing has changed. It is just that we want to be politically accepted and, for, and fall in line with the nations and what 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 UN has said on these these kind of matters. But that's the tragedy of our times, to be honest with you. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth. It is a live, interactive call-in program with Pastor Dr. David Murphy, the pastor of Grace Baptist Church on Roan Henry Street in Antigua. Are you enjoying his teaching? Are you in Antigua and you're looking for a Bible teaching church to attend? If you're already attending a Bible teaching church, continue to support that church. But if you are looking for one, we welcome you with open arms to join us at uh, Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. for Sunday school and 10 a.m. for the morning service. Again, that is at Grace Baptist Church on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 825 if you have a question, you can call and ask it live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420, or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Thank you to those who have already sent in their questions. You can contact us with multiple questions in the evening if you so desire. You can also email your question to crlthatstruth at gmail.com. One word, no space, no apostrophe. And the final way you can interact with us is on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. 
Click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then right there on your device, you can comment in the comment section, and your comment will be passed along to Pastor Murphy live on the air in a timely manner. Anything else you want to mention about profits, or are you ready for no, the next I think, question? I think I think I hope I'm able to. I hope I'm some way help the person to understand why we don't believe there are any profits today. By the way, uh, there are these fellows who come over to con- different countries. Uh, when I was in Seleucia, there was some guy there uh, saying that um, Seleucia's best days are forward. Not, not, I wonder what he's saying today. But again, you couldn't put any coins in the in the wisp basket. He didn't want to hear noise. <laughs> wanted the paper. He wanted the paper, right? I, I don't know why Christians are so naive and so easily deceived and not see that uh, these people are gold diggers. And uh, they're using what they claim to be a prophetic gift often to uh, milk the people. And uh, I thank God that even before I was a Christian, I had more sense than a lot of Christians today who allow these people to come in and say what they want to say, uh, uh, take all the resources basically, and then go off and just keep fooling people from one to the other. So I, I, I just calling for greater discernment on believers in, in these matters and uh, let the Bible be your guide in, in relation to the subjects of this nature. We have another question here. Is it wrong, Pastor, for a person to lust after their spouse? That's not a question you hear every day, but from a biblical standpoint, is it wrong to lust after your spouse? Well, look, the biblical word that is used for, for lust is a word that ha- it can either have an evil connotation or a good connotation. And generally speaking, it's the context in which the word is used that defines whether or not it is something that is legitimate or not legitimate. When it comes to the whole, uh, the word lust in the Bible has to do with desire. That's what the word really means, desire. So you desire uh, your wife or, or whatever. There are things that uh, legitimately are, are illegitimate. It depends on your focus of those desires. For example, if you look at Matthew chapter 27 to 29, uh, you have illegitimate desires there, focus on the wrong object. Matthew 27, 29? Not, chapter 5, so 27 to 29. Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 27 to 29. Too many numbers for me to keep uh, up with. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Verse 29. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and that, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Here's sexual desire. Focus on the wrong object. It's focused on someone who is not your wife. You see another woman, and uh, you get, you know, uh, you, these desires, etc., etc. The Lord said, you know, if you desire, you sleep with her in your mind, you undress her in your mind. He said, listen, you've already committed adultery. The act adultery is not what makes adultery adultery. It has to do with the thoughts behind of that, etc. And of course, by the way, people who say, I like the uh, Sermon on the Mount, I don't want the law because the Sermon on the Mount is so much better. <laughs> they don't understand what the Sermon on the Mount is it's far more severe yeah. than the actual the law standard. itself? Yeah, yeah. raises the standard. But the point I'm making here is that uh, when it comes to a man desiring his wife uh, sexually, that is nothing wrong with that. Purely biblical. As a matter of fact, 
Corinthians chapter 7, Paul expects mutuality and uh, reciprocity within the sexual uh, relationship. Paul said the man doesn't own his own body, nor does the wife own her own body. There must be a mutual sharing, etc. So each must meet the needs of each other. And Paul said if you're going to, for any moment of time, you're going to have some kind of a suspension of this regular sexual activity within the marriage. He said, listen, you've got to mutually agree that on this, you just can't unilaterally decide I close shop. Uh, Paul says that's not acceptable. You have to decide, sit down with your husband. In the case, Paul said a time of prayer, time of whatever it is. But it is something that uh, must be decided on between the two persons. You can't make a unilateral decision that you're going to starve your partner of of, uh, the normal sexual activity within the marriage. So Paul is calling for mutuality and reciprocity and cooperation in this matter. Uh, And uh, so... There's nothing wrong in desiring your wife. She's your wife. That's the right object of, of desire. There's nothing wrong in that. And uh, it would be rather strange that you didn't desire her, to be very honest with you. So I am. I, I don't believe that um, there's anything wrong with that. Um, Paul has some other instructions on this whole matter. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 and 9. This is how, when you got those kind of sexual desires, uh, Paul explains what is a legitimate avenue to have those desires met. First Corinthians seven, eight, and nine. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and window, widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Yeah, he doesn't mean burn in hell. He means to burn in your desires. That's the literal interpretation of it. So here you are, you're a widow, you're unmarried, and you have this sexual drive that is driving you crazy. So it's putting your, your mind in the direction that you should not go in. Paul said the way to meet that legitimate need is to get married. That's how you deal with sexual desires and sexual needs. It don't mean you just marry to have sex. But if you are not designed by God to be celibate, and you find that you have these desires within you, and it's focused on the wrong object, uh, Paul says the legitimate way of dealing with that is marriage. Get married and uh, get your needs met. Look at Corinthians 7 verse 2. Corinthians 7 2. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Again, Paul said, Look, the Bible answer to lust and these kind of things is marriage. Get married if you have that. You don't go and just mess up other women's lives and they become a second hand vessel that another man is going to take on some point in time or maybe a third hand or fourth hand or sixth hand, whatever it is. You don't want to mess people's lives up so that they get a second hand product. So if you find that you can't contain yourself, that is the particular object of it, okay? But what advice would you have for the young man that says, Pastor, I'm lust is consuming me. I'm going to get married. I need to get married right now. And he wants to get married, but yet others are saying, whoa, 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 put the brakes on. Don't make a foolish decision. You need to uh, make sure that that's the correct person. Yeah, because uh, sex must not be the primary purpose for marriage. Uh, Paul is saying it's a legitimate way of doing it, but you can't just say, I'm going to get sex. If sex was the answer to marriage, we wouldn't have any divorce. (laughs) I'm serious. We wouldn't have any divorce, right? So it's more to marriage than just having sex. And the mistake that people make, they think that when they jump into the bed, all problems solved. Problems just began, as a matter of fact. Well, I would say to a young man like that, uh, I don't know, or a young woman, um, 
okay, you've got the desire, you want to get married, but there are other factors you need to look at because within your first two years of marriage, the main problem you're going to have is finance. So if you're going to marriage, you're going to bed, but you have your finances unstable, make it your marriage not going to last. So you've got to make sure that somehow you're financially stable. You have a regular job. Um, you have you have a sense of responsibility. If you don't have a sense of responsibility, stay out of marriage, right? Stay out of marriage completely until you get responsible. So I would say to that 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 person that you know, uh, is there evidence that you are stable? Is there evidence that you have uh, financial security? You, what, what what kind of because these are the problems, Nathan. And then the other thing that uh, you know, if you want to have going into marriage, you know, the wedding, people want a big thing, so they spend the next two years paying off their debt. They're already going to have problems in marriage when they begin first two years with the debt. Now you're going to add debt to it as well. So these are other factors that need to be borne in mind. Uh, so you just don't jump into marriage because you have a sexual need that needs to be met. And the, Paul says, well, go ahead and better the marriage than the burn. But there are, there are other things that the Bible talks about. You've got to love your wife as you love your body. And you've got to take care of your wife like you take care of your body. So how are you going to take care of her now uh, other than, than meeting your sexual needs? So there are more to marriage than just sex, right? So I would... Balance that idea with it, and I would encourage that person to try to build up a financial resources at first, and then not only that, try to be more mature. Show, show that, um, for example, show that you can hold a job. If a person can't yeah. hold a job, how in the world? Like, if a person can't do a pastor, want to get married. Suppose somebody from church came to pastor, want to get married, and I listen to them, and I, I know the person, but I find that they, they, they don't, they can't hold a job. They jump. Blah, blah, blah. I would never say that you're you're not ready for marriage yet. You don't understand responsibility. And they may not like me or don't like me, but quite frankly, it doesn't bother me. I am concerned that when I marry people, I want marriage to last. I'm not here to uh, to show how many marriages I perform within a year. And I, you know, that, <laughs> that doesn't appeal to me. I want marriages that work. And therefore, I would be inclined to dissuade that person until the evidence, show me some evidence of maturity. And meanwhile, they're building up their, their income uh, to be ready for mine. That's all we would, would deal with that. The other thing, let's look at Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3 to 5, Nathan. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one from the other, except it be with consent for a time that ye might give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. No one can read that passage but don't understand that Paul expected sex to be regular and frequent within marriage. There's no question about that, right? And uh, when you're dealing with problems, Nathan, you find that the problems in marriage, there are four main problems in marriage. Number one problem is normal communication. Number two has to do with sex, has to do with, uh, f- uh, number two is finance, money, and then in-laws, those four things. But in a lot of cases, these other three are related to this one of, of communication, because if you don't communicate well, you have problems, your wife, not, she can shut shop on you, basically. So you've got to understand that one of the big things, the real big thing is communication with, with your wife. You want to have regularity in, in, in sexual activity, etc. Um, that is fundamental, right? And people need to understand that. Um, so uh, the other thing is this. There are some people now who are marrying in the contract. And in the contract, I'm just be honest with you, I've, I've seen it on the internet. They actually include in the marriage f- the frequency. We're going to have sex twice a week or three weeks. No, I'm serious. Because what they discover, what they've discovered is that that is a main problem in marriage. And when a man has a uh, 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 um, 
volume of testosterone, quite frankly, he may be more desired than his wife is, or vice versa. And these things should not have to be written in a contract. Because Paul said it should be regular and frequent. But because of what has happened, there are people now when they get married, they're putting these, stipulating these kind of things. It's, it's so ridiculous to be very honest with you. But the, the thing I'm making here as well is that when you are in, going to get married, don't discuss these things um, while you're dating. But once you engage, these are things you begin to discuss, you know, so that the wife is aware you have a drive, a very powerful drive, and you need to let her know you do your drive so that she's not shocked because her drive is not. Those are the kind of things that you discuss in the engagement, not in the dating, because within an engagement, you've got a year before you normally get married, but those are kind of things. The other thing is that I find that people don't read good books, and I would recommend to people, like, for example, The Act of Marriage by Tim LaHaye. That's a classic book. I, if you haven't read that, I would recommend any married person to read that as a Christian. There's another one, um, What Wise wish their husband knew about women by uh, J- J- Dobson. Okay. Fantastic book. And then Intended for Pleasure yeah. by Dr. Wheat. That's another very good book. Um, and the other one is Love and Respect. I forgot who wrote that book. But these are books that, I mean, you're engaged. These are things that your partner should be reading. You should be reading. You read one book. but So that some things that you feel uncomfortable discussing. Those books will discuss that with the person in their mind. And uh, so they are weird. If I give you the book of the act of marriage to read, and you give, and I'm reading that, and then we exchange books, we have an idea. Because some of the things that you find in these books, where I wish I knew them before I got married, to be very mm-hmm. honest with you. Uh, but that is how you, you uh, prepare yourself for each other so that you understand this is to be regular and frequent. And this is, you know, but those kind of books help you because these are topics that you feel embarrassed to talk about, to be honest with you. But there are ways of getting that information to, to your partner by sharing good literature and good Christian books. But to answer the question, uh, quite frankly, I can't see how it can ever be wrong for a man to desire his wife. As a matter of fact, I thank God that you desire your wife and not somebody else. So, And she should be she should be delighted that you find her attractive and you find her uh, sexually appealing rather than you having to go and watch pornography or watch some other thing. To, 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 uh, thing. So I have no problem with it, to be very honest with you. Thank you very much to all who have sent in questions tonight. There is 20 minutes left in this episode of That's Truth. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.40. When was the last time that you invited someone or encouraged someone to tune into That's Truth? Not necessarily during the program on Tuesday evening, but maybe on a Monday afternoon, maybe on a Saturday morning, said, hey, be sure that this coming Tuesday or this coming Saturday afternoon that you tune into That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We have a WhatsApp question that has come in from Antigua. Pastor, please remember the instance when Jesus was on the cross and he handed his mother over to John and John over to his mother. Recently, a young man almost assaulted me in town because he didn't want me to talk anymore about Jesus. Instead, he was saying, what about Mary? He then said, he's sure Mary is seated on the right hand of the Father in heaven. What exactly is the Catholic Church teaching that could cause all of this confusion? 
Well, look, the, the Catholic Church has been wrong for centuries. The reason why you had the Protestant Reformation and why Luther and uh, Calvin and, and uh, Zwingli and all of those people came out of the Catholic Church is because they were trying to reform the Catholic Church because of the deviant doctrines they got that is contrary to Scripture. And one of those false doctrines is that they made Mary a goddess. Uh, there's a church in Barbados called uh, the Queen of Heaven, and they have Mary as a queen. There's no queen in heaven. Let's be very, very clear. There's no queen in heaven, okay? But that's the Catholic doctrine. They also teach, for example, that Mary is the co-mediatrix. Now, there's only one mediator between God and man, the Bible tells us. But they said, no, no, there are two mediators. Mary is helping Jesus. And then they teach what is called co-redemptrix, that she is part of help with the redemption of, of humankind. It is these kind of erroneous false doctrines that uh, people embrace. So when you begin to say to them that Jesus Christ is the only way, there's only one mediator, that Mary is a woman that is dead, she can't help you, can't pray to Mary, people are highly offended because of the doctrine of the Catholic Church. The offense is going to come. As long as you state the biblical truth, you're going to have people who are um, who are offended because they think that when you say that something like this is wrong, you are attacking the Catholic Church. I am not concerned about attacking the Catholic Church. I'm concerned about biblical doctrine. So you cannot deal with biblical doctrine except you deal with those doctrines that are deviant or false. So it's necessary for you sometimes to say that this is a false doctrine, this is a false teaching. Now what people should do when you say that is this. Well, if, let's see if he's right. Let's go into the Bible and see if there's a co-redemptrix, if there's a co-mediatrix. Uh, medi- uh, and then when you find that it doesn't exist, well, then you come out of the Catholic Church. Then you leave a movement like that. But don't think that... Take the Scripture. When people say something is not true or doctrine is false, take the Scriptures and judge that by the Scriptures. If the person aligns with the Scripture, you try to align with the person as well. See? But that's the problem that is happening. When you are emphasizing the, these doctrines and people believe them. And by the way, a lot of these people don't read the Bibles. They just listen to whatever the priest says or the Pope says or whatever it is. Um, and, uh, and that's the problem today. But you must stick to the truth. You must let the Bible be the standard for your doctrine and your practice. You must not deviate and you must be willing to pay the price of taking a stand for biblical truth. You can't uh, allow... Uh, persecution or allow people to browbeat you into surrendering biblical truth. Uh, you can't do that. You take a stand for biblical truth and you do what all the martyrs have done before. The witness of the Christ and the witness of Scripture. Those are two things you hold to and you don't surrender. A question from a listener that kind of follows along the concept of is it possible or is it a negative thing to lust after your spouse? This listener says, I once heard a man of God say that he masturbated to the thoughts of his wife. Is this practice holy or unholy? Well, first of all, he's not a man of God. I could say that definitely he's not a man of God. He might be a professed pastor. He might be a preacher. But any man that self-masturbates to the image of his wife, quite frankly, uh, is a deviant person. Masturbation is wrong in all of its forms because masturbation is is, is sex directed to self, auto-sex, basically. And the Bible condemns that. The Bible teaches heterosexual sex, that sex must be directed towards a partner, especially your wife, uh, exclusively your wife, quite frankly. So when a pastor is saying that he uh, is visualizes his wife and he's having masturbation, he's, he's an evil pastor. And what he's doing, quite frankly, in my judgment, he is encouraging other young men 
especially when you are a very very young young man and the testosterone is there you all go through that phase in adolescence where you hear these kind of things and uh, you end up if you're not very careful practicing these kind of things all he's doing quite frankly is creating a generation of masturbators to make that kind of a statement it's ridiculous that a man of God would make a public statement like that, hoping that somehow it would benefit or help anybody. It, it, it is quite an immoral thing that he's doing. It is wrong. And um, I don't care who he is, uh, he's not a man of God. He may have a, a, a collar around his neck, he might wear a frock or something, but he's not a man of God. He's a man who is uh, perverted in his mind and uh, has moved away from biblical principles and biblical morality and either doesn't have a proper understanding of biblical sexuality, but what he's doing is evil. It's not right. We have a question that has come in. Good night, Pastor and Brother Nathan. I really enjoy the show. Recently, there were some services held at the Multipurpose Center. I was told it was a Christian function, but I was quite disturbed by some of the things that were taking place. In these hard times, people were paying a prophet to pray for them, And this is far from extreme. Pastor, I saw other people who profess Christianity, but I am convinced this was not of God. Am I being judgmental? And do you believe God gives supernatural powers to to some believers to deliver others? Quite frankly, this this is atrocious. This is an abomination that you've got hurting people coming to a, a, a paying a person to pray for them. I mean, how low can you get? Uh, how mercenary can you get in this kind of thing? So whoever planned that, whoever programmed that, that is evil to the height of evilness. It's wrong. It's completely wrong. If God has given a person a gift to help people in, in an era like that, the person should be able to go naturally to the person to do that. You shouldn't have to pay somebody to pray for you and to, to do those kind of things. Uh, this is total evil. This is this is now making the church merchandise of the church. Uh, this is where I don't know how people are not discerning enough to understand that these kind of things are what the Bible talks about in the end times. Uh, if you go back to, to Timothy and uh, some of those books, it talks about men who are greedy for gain in the end times willing to sacrifice their soul for filthy lucre. This is what you're having today, and uh, churches are complicit in it. Um, as far as God-giving men uh, gift to, to heal, that's what it said, healing? Uh, to deliver, let me look at the exact word, some believers to deliver others, supernatural powers. I, look, I, look, the Lord has given to his church his word he's given to us his church his spirit he's given to us guidance on these matters and uh, I myself I'm not a person that involved in what they call a lot of deliverance because I think a lot of the deliverance is bogus as well there is some truth to a lot of it as well they do have uh, people who have got contact with demons I recently dealt with one recently and I, I'm trying to get a, a group of people in our church eventually to make sure that they're praying when we try to try try to help this person but again um the, the, the idea that you go around you're you're an exorcist you go from church to church as though this is you're like <laughs> you're almost like a uh, a doctor going from place to place you've got this great power etc etc i i don't have any people uh in my lifetime who 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 uh who have that kind of a claim i know that some people do but i do notice that pastors try to help people when there's a matter of uh, demon possession, etc., etc., and they should. But again, uh, there's no uh, particular gift talk about the gift of exorcism. 
they just said in the name of Jesus you will cast out demons. So that has, is a general thing that is given to the church, the authority of the church. And that's where I think that pastors should help people when they're in this condition. It's actually a fact of um, demon possession. Anytime, for example, a person acts kind of crazy and medication could solve it, it's not a demonic problem. It's very simple as that. It's an organic problem. So if you find a person who claims to be like, um, there are people who are bipolar, and it, bipolar is a physical problem, and there are people that people think that they're mad, they're not mad, because once medication can bring their uh, neurotransmitters back into balance, it's clearly it can't be demonic, it's a, it's a mental problem sometimes. You, and, and a lot of the times, people are delivering people who are normal, and uh, not understanding that the you know uh, the the understanding the the uh, oh should I say it? <coughs> the physiology of it and the the medical science behind this and, and so on and so forth. I remember one time Nate and I visited a, a lady to try to help with another pastor here, and she was taken. I don't want to exaggerate. Uh, again, like ten or fifteen sleeping pills. I can't sleep. <coughs> wow, you're dealing now with <coughs> something that is beyond the physical. Moreover, I never met a woman that cursed God more mm. and uh, talked more vulgar things about her and Jesus. So I knew we weren't dealing with a normal situation. We were dealing with somebody who's clearly demon-possessed. <coughs> I would not um, recommend, I would not suggest anybody that you go to pay somebody to heal you or go and pay to get somebody to pray for you. They've taken the gospel, they've taken biblical truth, and have brought it to shame and reproach. And that's why people today have so little respect for the church, because they think the church is just out there to milk people of their money and their resources. And the problem is, it is a, a broad brush that tarnishes everybody that's a, a church. And that's the misfortune. But I would say to you that that was wrong, that was, that was not biblical, that was not scriptural. Pastor, do you believe that there is such a thing as soulmates? Um, what people mean by soulmates, quite frankly, is that they've found a person uh, and their personality is compatible with theirs. For example, they seem to share the same thoughts, the same dreams. They seem to have the same thought patterns, same values, um, same interests, same priority. Uh, I suppose it's possible that you might find somebody who just mesh with you. But the reality is that's not the real world. Uh, what the Bible talks about more in the scriptures is complementary relationships. In other words, you find that in the in the Bible. That's why <clears throat> that's why Eve was made to be a helpmeet, to be complement Adam. So in his ear deficiency, she fills in that her ear he fills in. So it's not that you think alike, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but you're able to work together and synchronize together. That's the biblical ideal, and you'll find that is more realistic than to spend your whole life looking for a soulmate. <laughs> I know people today. I know of wonderful young ladies. Well, they're no longer young ladies. They're old maids now, waiting for Mr. Wright to come. I'm serious about that. I mean, really attractive people. They never found, because you're looking for your soulmate. We're going to find mm -hmm. him, right? Very rarely do you find a person that thinks like you, acts like you. That's not. You've got to learn to work and complement each other. That is more the biblical model. So you focus more on what um, characteristics. God talks about in relation, like Peter, 
a meek and a quiet spirit, a woman who is submissive, a woman who acknowledges authority. Uh, th those are what you look for. You don't look in for somebody who thinks the way you do. And, 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 uh, but I suppose it's possible to find somebody in life that really, in truth and fact, is just a hand and glove. But that's a very rare thing. In most marriages, it's about working out your problems, trying to synchronize with each other, balance each other, and working through your issues. I think that is more the, the biblical model of, of, um, of this matter. And I would say to uh, any person who's listening, what you look for, the cues you look for, uh, has to do with love, respect, um, submission, um, a th respect for authority and that kind of thing. Those are things you look for, the, the meek and the quiet spirit I mentioned before. That's the thing you're looking for. You're not looking for this idea of compatible in, in thinking and behavior. You're on the wrong route. It sounds good, uh, but very rarely would you ever meet somebody that's a clone of you. So you've got to learn to work each other and have we and then think of cultures the cross-cultural thing we have in the Caribbean. I mean, a solution is not a Barbadian. And Antiguan is not even essential in the thinking. I can tell you that. Not even in the food, right? So if even a simple matter of food, you're not compatible with because differences. How you expect your personality is going to be uh, shaped and formed in St. Lucia or in Antigua and in St. Vincent, different backgrounds, whatever it is. If you're looking for that, you're hardly going to find it. Look for those biblical principles. Does he really love me? Because a man must love his wife. Does she really respect me? and my authority, that she willing to submit to, to, to my authority, that she let me to lead, that kind of thing. Does he show kindness and thoughtfulness to his, his mom, to his sisters? Those are things you look for, but looking for this idea of having this, you'll be waiting until you're dying and you won't find that person. I think we can all think of individuals who are still waiting for Mr. <laughs> right or, or Miss Right, yep. and they are aging as they wait. And probably will never find him, to yeah. be honest with you. Uh, and then, then if you want children, you know, you if you, you go beyond your 40s, hardly you're going to want to make that choice. <clears throat> and if a, most men want at least a child, right? Most men. So it's something you've got to be very concerned about. Is there any words of advice that you would have for the listener who says, Pastor, you referenced different cultures. I'm Antiguan, and the person that I'm engaged to is from St. Lucia. Is it possible for that to work out? What are things we need to be aware of ahead of time? Yeah, well, it, it works out because I my, my son is a Barbadian. His wife is a St. Lucian. St. Lucian. My son is a Barbadian, and the other wife is a Guyanese. I would say to you, it's important in your dating to try to meet the family. I would say it's almost a given you've got to meet the family because I keep telling people you're not just marrying a woman or a man, you're marrying into a family. And uh, there are a lot of things you can pick up when you go to the home of the family. And it depends on your background as well. L let me use a simple illustration. Suppose you're the type of person, Nathan, that likes everything orderly. Right. From the time you were born, <coughs> you learn that when you get up, son, you make up your bed, you keep the place. But you go and visit her home, it's like a storm. Now the question you, you you might believe that you're by going dropping into bed basically that that's not that, that's going to be a big issue with you, so you have to look at even those simple things. Okay, take eating for example. Barbadians, we love rice, quite frankly, right? Down south, they love provisions, right? My wife is a Vincentian. Okay, I had to decide if I can handle that. Right, I can handle that. As a matter of fact, she's kind of moved me towards provisions as well. But again, there are some people. If the she, all she knows to cook, 
provisions. She doesn't she not know how to do rice in five different ways. Can you handle a simple matter like and you'll be a you know you know, you've heard of the person whose marriage got broken because of the toothpaste, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that might, that's a simple thing. It might seem simple, but it can irritate you, yeah. right? So you've got to try to visit, find out about the family. And then dating is where you get to know the person. And I would say to people listening to me, stay out of sex once you're dating. The moment sex takes into the relationship, it is all about sex. Every time you meet, it's about sex. Every time you go, it's about sex. So you never are able to probe into the person's mind, understand how they think, because now the blinder is on. You can't see any more than that. And that's where people make a lot of mistakes. So they go into a marriage. All this has been a physical relationship all the time. And then they realize that after a while, 10 years... It's more to marriage than the physical. You're married now. You got to live in misery, right? Mm-hmm. So learn at the time to to to, to spend some time finding out about her, her family, how she. Uh, let me give you another example. Even educational level is important, right? You can be so far in more educated than your wife, so there's no compound in what you read, what you discuss. Uh, even those things are, are very, very, very significant. For the listener who says, Pastor, I'm miserable in my marriage, is there hope in there's the last al- 30 seconds? There's always hope in Jesus Christ. And again, we go back to the biblical principles and we work those principles into our marriage. We made some mistakes. I wrote somebody recently and tell them, let's start over again. Start from the beginning. You've made a lot of mistakes. Repent. Let's start over again. That can happen. Christ gives you a new page, a new beginning. Thank you for listening to That's Truth. If we did not get to your question tonight, don't fret. Next week, Lord willing, we will ask Pastor Murphy and he'll answer it. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.